At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our series, Divided, Seeking Unity in a Fractured World, we're coming face-to-face with the division that seems to define the culture of our nation, our communities, and even our churches. Join us as we turn to 1 Corinthians to discover the unifying power of a people who follow Christ. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, this is our third week working through this chapter of the Bible. And as you can tell from the title of the sermon series, uh, Divided, we're focusing on this theme of unity. Um, as people from all over the spectrum of life are aware that the fabric of our uh, culture and community is being pulled at the seams, it seems like as, as hard as ever, and that's impacted the church as much as any other organization. And so we want to focus on God's call for us to be unified in Christ. And the Corinthian church may especially experience the pull towards division. And so we're opening up this letter to, to get a word from God through the pen of the Apostle Paul uh, calling us to unity in Christ. And the verses we're looking at today are really, in many ways, the opening of the letter. This is the beginning of what's called the body of the letter. Um, If you recall back, second grade, maybe third, uh, your teacher taught you how to write a letter. You remember that? It was a while ago for most of us. Uh, But there's the, the salutation, and then you get into what's called the body of the letter, which is what you're kind of actually trying to say. So two weeks ago, we looked at the salutation, verses 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle by the will of God and so forth. Just those first three verses are the salutation. But then there was this other convention in ancient letter writing in which the writer would thank God for whoever he was writing to. It was just sort of a a writing convention. Of course, you get a lot of truth packed into those few verses when it's a letter in Scripture, and so Glenn preached for us last week on verses 4 through 9, just some amazing gospel truth as the apostle is thanking God for the Corinthian church. But all of that is sort of letter-writing conventions. He's really now getting into what he really wants to say to the Corinthian church. Uh, so let's get into this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius and So that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. But beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ 
be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Detroit versus everybody. You may have seen it on a hoodie or a t-shirt, but I bet most of us are familiar with that phrase, the slogan, Detroit versus everybody. These shirts were created in 2012 when the city was still suffering the effects of the financial crisis along with many other related issues, and it seems like everybody was dogging on Detroit. Everybody was doubting the city. And so this clothing designer, his name's Tommy Walker, he's from the city, he said, everybody's against us, so let's just own it. Detroit versus everybody. And so this fad was born. And now, 10 years later, versus everybody has gear for, well, everybody. (laughs) Because this us versus them mentality just resonates with us. It's a fashion statement, it's a political statement, it's a cultural proclamation about fighting back, building walls, dividing, drawing a line in the sand, dividing ourselves from the other. It's as natural as breathing, creating rivalries and positioning ourselves above the other group, looking down on the other side. It is now all part and parcel of being human. And there have been volumes of psychological treaties trying to explain why our minds create these categories so naturally, so instantly. Uh, They've come up with feeling threatened, unhealthy competition, a flawed self-image, a confused sense of Identity, these psychological dynamics all play a part in creating the us versus them mentality. But this begs the question, where do these psychological dynamics come from? Why does this play itself out in each human and each group of humans? Why are we now wired like this? Well, the story of the Bible shares with us that when humanity fell into rebellion against God's way and God's word... As soon as we fell into rebellion against God, division and disharmony became natural parts of our world. Our rebellion distorted the nature of God's perfect image in us, and it introduced what was unnatural into the equation, namely sin and evil. Now, because of sin's impact on God's creation, it's natural for the world to be divided against itself. It's a natural part of the human experience to build a culture that glorifies our individuality so that we are lifted up while others are pushed down. Ever since the garden, humanity is clamoring and clawing and crawling all over each other to get to the top, to sit on the throne, us versus everybody. So is it even possible to experience unity? In such a fractured world. Well, this is exactly the nature of the problem that the Apostle Paul addresses in the church in Corinth in first century. And Paul wants these Christians to know that what is natural in the fallen world is unnatural in the kingdom of God. There is no such thing as an us versus them mentality when it comes to God's people and when it comes to God's kingdom. 
Again and again throughout Scripture, we learn that God's people are not to be divided. We learn this truth throughout Scripture, and we certainly learn it in 1 Corinthians. So look once more at verse 10. Paul begins the body of his letter with these words. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that there be no divisions among you. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And so we see here that Paul makes an appeal. And on the one hand, he's not heavy-handed. On the one hand, he's not overly assertive. He says he makes an appeal, not a demand. Nevertheless, he makes his appeal by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So even though he is pastorally sensitive here, he is also very serious here. He invokes the name of Christ in order to make this Appeal Because this is a big deal. It's a big deal that God's people agree. It's a big deal that we not be divided. It's a big deal that we be of the same mind and same judgment. Now we must ask, does this mean that every Christian is going to agree with every other Christian on every little thing? Of course not. Paul is not naive to think that every follower of Jesus is going to have the exact same opinion about every topic of discussion. His appeal for unity here, as we'll see, leads to the nature of the gospel itself. And his appeal for unity relates to the way that the Corinthian believers were attaching themselves to different leaders within the church and so dividing themselves based on the leader they attached themselves to. When they lost grip of the gospel, and when each chose their fellow leader, well, then they each started to go their own way. And so they were divided. And so over the next few chapters, especially 1 Corinthians chapter 1 through 4, the apostle continues to diagnose and treat this issue of division. And of course, this morning, we're only looking at the next few verses, but we're again asking the question. How can we experience unity? How can we fulfill the apostolic appeal to not be divided? Well, the first thing Paul is going to tell us is to acknowledge and mend what's been torn. Acknowledge and mend what's been torn. So listen as Paul continues after he makes this initial appeal to the church. He urges them to be unified in verse 10 And then he continues in verse 11. He says, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So he's mentioned divisions in verse 10, and now he mentions quarreling in verse 11. He's heard these reports of infighting amongst the church. Then in verse 12, we get more of a clue as to what these fights are about. He says, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. So as I alluded to earlier, it seems like what took place in the Corinthian church was that different members were choosing their favorite leader and attaching them to to this leader 
in an unhealthy way that led to division. For some, it was Paul. For others, it was Apollo. Still others, it was Cephas, or Cephas is another name for Peter. Perhaps some attached themselves to Paul because of his deep, rich theology. Paul had an incredible intellect. Paul had an incredible grasp of the Scriptures like no other person in history. So perhaps those are the reasons some chose Paul. Others perhaps chose Apollos because of his polished rhetoric. We know from Acts chapter 18, verse 24, that Apollos was, quote, an eloquent man and competent in the Scriptures. And the idea of eloquence here relates to eloquent oratory skills. Apollos was an impressive and compelling speaker. Perhaps still others attached themselves to Cephas or Peter. Maybe it was because Peter was so personally close to Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. And as uneducated as Peter was, he did prove to be a powerful preacher. So perhaps they chose Peter for those reasons. But regardless of which one they chose, and regardless for the reason for choosing which one they chose, Paul is naming the issue here. Right at the start of his letter, without flinching, Paul is acknowledging what's gone wrong that's led to their division. Because there's not going to be any healing until we say what needs to be healed. They have attached themselves to these different leaders, and well, this is my guy over here, and that's your guy over there, and so it's me versus you, it's us versus you, and here's the reasons why I chose my guy, and here's the reasons you have for choosing your guy, and thus the quarreling occurs, and the church is divided. And friends, the same sort of thing can play itself out in our own church. This is the preacher that I like the most. This is the leader that I really connect with. This is the politician or political group that I affiliate with. This is the cultural commentator that I follow. You know, one of my favorite part about sports is the rivalries. The Pistons versus the Pacers, the Lions versus the Packers, the Lions versus the Vikings, the Red Wings versus the Maple Leafs, Michigan State, Michigan. There's this history of hatred between these different teams. These rivalries are good and they make the game interesting, but that's just it. It's a game. The rivalries are something interesting to do on Saturday and Sunday, but ultimately, hear this, guys, ultimately, nothing is on the line when it comes to these different athletic rivalries. It's really something important to embrace before we enter into the heartache that is very often comes with football season as it relates to the Lions, Michigan State, and U of M. Let's be honest. It's important to acknowledge that nothing is ultimately on the line when it comes to these different rivalries. It is just a game. I'm speaking to myself here. <clears throat> but it is the exact opposite when it comes to the rivalries that Paul is talking about. The rivalries that affect us politically, spiritually, and culturally. When we attach ourselves to a political leader and it drives a wedge between ourselves and other Christ followers, that is not a game. That is a move of eternal consequence. 
when we affiliate with a certain teacher or preacher such that we then put down and separate from other pastor preachers, that is not inconsequential. That brings disgrace upon the gospel. The apostle says, let there be no divisions among you. Agree with one another. Be of the same mind. But it will never happen unless we're honest, unless we acknowledge the tendency within all of us to choose our favorites, to pick sides, and set ourselves against the other side. How can we experience unity in a fractured world, in a fractured church? Acknowledge and mend what's been torn, and secondly, turn to the one and only Christ. Turn to the one and only Christ. So after Paul gives his initial diagnosis of the problem, the way they were tying themselves to certain teachers, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, and so forth, after the diagnosis, he then starts into the solution by pointing them back to Christ. He begins in verse 13. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? And the answer, of course, is no. Christ is not divided against himself, and thus the body of Christ, the church, is not to be divided against itself. But when the body of Christ does divide in these ways, we betray who Christ is. That's why this is such a big deal. When we are divided against ourselves, we tell the world something about Christ that is not true. He is not divided. Next, Paul asks, was I crucified for you? Or was Peter crucified for you? Or was Apollos crucified for you? And again, of course, no. It was Christ who died in our place. But when we unhealthily attach ourselves to certain leaders, it's as if we make them our Savior. Church, hear this. What Paul is saying is that we can esteem a human leader to the point that they take the place of Jesus in our lives. This is what the apostle is saying. By the Holy Spirit, with the authority of heaven, we can esteem a human leader to the point that they take the place of Jesus in our lives. Was this politician crucified for you? No. Was this pastor crucified for you? No. Paul is saying, okay, if those leaders weren't crucified for you, stop acting like it. And follow Christ, worship Christ, elevate Christ, the true Savior. And then at the end of verse 13, Paul asks a final rhetorical question. He brings up a topic that he'll expand on in the next few verses, namely baptism. He asks at the end of verse 13, were you baptized into the name of Paul? So apparently it's hard to know all the details, but apparently one of the ways that the different members of the Corinthian church chose their favorite leader 
was based on who baptized them. Because Paul is going to explain in verses 14 through 16 that even though he planted the Corinthian church, he himself had hardly baptized any of the Corinthian Christians. And he says that he's glad that he baptized so few so that none of them could claim that they had been baptized in his name. Because the truth is, none of them were baptized in the name of any mere man. We were baptized into the name of Christ. It's Christ whose name we bear through baptism. Not Paul, not Apollos, not Peter. It was Christ who was crucified for them. And it was Christ into whom they were baptized. So you see, Paul is calling them, turn to Christ. He's the only one who can save you. He's the only leader who can fulfill the desires of your heart. And he concludes in verse 17. Again, sticking with this theme of baptism and how the Corinthians were choosing their favorite leader based on who baptized them. He says, for Christ didn't even send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel. Paul says, you guys are elevating leaders based on who baptized you, but Christ didn't even send me to baptize. He sent me to preach the gospel. So, of course, baptism is important, but it is not primary. And assigning a special status to a certain leader because they baptized us is not only silly, it is sinful. He sent me to preach Christ. He sent me to preach the gospel. That's what saves us, and that's what unites us. The gospel of Christ. Later in chapter 3, Paul is still hammering away at this problem, and he writes these memorable words. He says this in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 7. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? We are but servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Sure, I planted and sure, Apollos watered, but it is God who gave the growth. So neither he who plants, Paul, nor he who waters, Apollos, is anything. But it is God alone who gives the growth. Paul says, I am nothing. He says, Apollos is nothing. Peter is nothing. Your favorite pastor or preacher is nothing. We aren't anything. He says, it is God, and it is God's Son who saves us and who unites us. So what this means is that if you show me a church who is dividing, then I will show you a church who is not focused on Christ. The two go hand in hand. If you are not I'm sorry, if you are dividing, then you are not focusing on Christ. And so this is why we gather here every single week. We gather here to hear the gospel of Jesus. We gather here every week to be called to the feet of Jesus, to sing the praises of Jesus. Every week. As I said, 9.30 and 11. We'll be back. And this is why we celebrate here the Lord's Supper every single month, as we did last week. 
Because that practice that Jesus authorized every month makes us laser focus on the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Those elements of our salvation. His crushed body and His spilled blood. We do it every month. And this is why next month, We'll start meeting in our life groups, these smaller, more personal expressions of our unity in Christ. We meet in Christ-centered community in order to encourage one another and challenge one another, hey, let's continue to focus on Jesus. Let's adore Jesus. Let's follow Jesus together in community, in friendships. Right now in our world, it is easy for us to be known for what we are against. Detroit versus everybody. Right versus left. Us versus them. But the apostle here isn't so much urging us to be against certain things. He is urging us to be for certain things. He is calling us to be for Christ. And he's calling us to be for one another. And the one flows from the other. If we are prioritizing Jesus over everything else, if we are prioritizing Jesus over everything else, then we will be able to stay together. But if we get distracted, we're going to be divided. If we lose focus, we are going to lose each other. And so let us pray that it wouldn't be so. As Paul calls us here, may there be no divisions among us. May we all agree. May we be of one mind and one judgment. I pray it be so in the name of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.